0: The settlement of Grand Prairie, Alberta was small and unsuspecting, beginning as many other Canadian towns did. Originally a popular trade route and inhabited by Cree and Iroquois people, the area began to experience rapid growth in the late 1800s, spurred on by an influx of foreign settlers. This expansion was cemented when Grand Prairie became an all-important stop on a newly constructed railway that bridged Alberta and BC. Post-World War I brought a massive amount of British veterans to the town, boosting the population even more as they took advantage of the appealing land agreements. By 1918, the town was firmly established with a bank, hotel, post office, and a newly opened police station brought in to curtail the slowly increasing crime rate. But nothing could have prepared the new force for what was coming. A single week in 1918 brought horrors worse than anyone could have anticipated, as six individuals were murdered. And just like that, Grand Prairie became the site of the largest unsolved mass murder in Alberta's history. Hello and welcome to Maple Moose Mysteries, the podcast where we take a look at unsolved Canadian mysteries and crimes, providing you with the context, history, and theories to draw your own conclusions. My name is Ben, your resident Canadian, and today we are taking a look at the Grand Prairie slayings, and how it remains one of the most grisly unsolved murders in Canadian history. This case has shades of scandal, racism, conspiracy, and too many unanswered questions to look at in a single sitting. Despite various theories, evidence, suspects, and multiple trials, the killer remains unknown. No better way to see for yourself where the answer could be than diving in with me right now. It all started with a house fire on June 20th, 1918. Dan Lowe raced into town on horseback to the Alberta Provincial Police to alert them that his neighbor's farm was ablaze. Lowe had heard commotion coming from the home of Joseph Snyder and his nephew Stanley, and upon getting closer enough to see what was going on, he realized it was on fire, and he went for help. Police arrived to find everything burned to the ground. One body, charred beyond recognition, was found. This was the body of Joseph, while the body of Stanley was later found nearby. It was determined that prior to the blaze, both men had been shot, and a 38 pistol was found nearby. This was originally believed by police to be a murder-suicide. That theory only held for three days, before more bodies were found elsewhere. Farmer Alex Peebles, concerned that he could not locate his neighbors, sought the police's assistance with attending their farm and searching for them. It was then that the bodies of Ignis Patton, James Woodwand, Charles Zimmer, and Frank Porchowski were all found on the farm in various gruesome states. All had been shot, aside from Patton, who appeared to have his throat slashed. What's more, upon further investigation, it was found that the gun that had killed the Snyders a few days before had belonged to Patton, suggesting that both sets of murders were linked. The murder-suicide theory was ruled out, and investigators began to hunt for any suspects who may have killed these six individuals. The town of Grand Prairie was turned upside down as police gathered evidence and witnesses to piece together the potential night of the murders. It was determined that three of the men, Patton, Zimmer, and Woodwand, were planning on leaving the town, and had recently withdrawn a large amount of cash for their travels. Only a small amount of the total sum was found on their persons following the murders. Prochowski was set to join them the evening of June 18th to bid them farewell and throw them a party. Their neighbor, Alex Peebles, had gone by the area and claimed to have seen five men there, but could not identify them on the farm. Other people in the town claimed that many people knew about the large sum of money that the men had recently procured, and that Patton had recently bought 38 ammunition for his gun. It seemed that, in a small town such as this, most events were common knowledge. What's worse, after the murders, bills soaked with blood began circulating amongst the community, as police scrambled to gather any leads they could. Someone had taken all of the money, and was using it. Two men, Norman Keeler and Earl Salisbury, were arrested on their way out of town. Having already been accused of a separate crime, police suspected that they could have been the murderers. But it was quickly verified that they had been out of town when the murders had taken place, and they were released. Police continued to search, but terrified citizens were not remotely satisfied that they were doing an adequate job. In fact, they were concerned at the response police gave in general. Everything was concerning from their lack of a quick follow-up to not even properly investigating the crime scene. A month after the murders, an article titled, Police Assistance Needed Badly, appeared in the local newspaper, highlighting the general lack of able-bodies that the area had. The town had never needed a strong police force in the past, but after six murders, The need for support was painfully clear. Grand Prairie was not going to catch the murderers with the law enforcement they currently had. All the most capable men had joined the war, and the police that were available were not up to task, something that even the higher ups at the Alberta Provincial Police were aware of. Investigations dragged on, with mountains of theories but little conclusions. Other investigators from across Canada were brought in, but they were also met with obstacles and were stunned by the incompetence of the local officers. The list of suspects was long, all with ties to the victims and had knowledge of the money that they had on hand, but the evidence was nothing more than circumstantial. Of all the suspects, Dan Lowe, the neighbor who had reported the fire at the Snyder Farm, was top of the list. Lowe was familiar with the victims and the money they possessed, as many were, but he had also recently seen all of the victims, the evening before the murders making it plausible that he had killed all of the men, and eliminated the Snyders to get rid of any potential witnesses, as they had been at the farm as well. The only tracks that police could find around the property were his. He had trekked through a bog to get to police, which would have conveniently washed away any blood or other evidence that may have been present. Other oddities piqued investigators interest, but there was nothing solid. Lowe moved around in the community, but was aware that he was a prime suspect, and was encouraged not to leave town. But nothing happened. Two years later, despite interviewing hundreds of potential witnesses and promoting and then increasing a reward for information, the results were nil. In a last ditch effort, Dan Lowe was finally charged for the murder of the six individuals on July 30th, 1920, and was put before a hearing where he pled not guilty, then brought to trial on December 19th, 1920. With little in the way of direct evidence and witnesses, And nothing new being found between the initial hearing and the trial, there was no surprise when the verdict came back not guilty. Even police were aware that they had little proof. And not two months later, another man was charged, Richard Nechtel. Richard was charged with four murders, Patton, Woodwand, Zimmer, and Prochowski, and he had known all of these men personally. Another interesting fact was that he had married the widow of one of these murdered men, Rose Prochowski, six months after her husband's death. Even stranger Rose, who had been out of the country during the murder, returned to the property where the crime had taken place and found a large amount of gold hidden on site. This event was strange to say the least, and must have made investigators all the more interested in Nectal as they looked for a potential motive for the killings. There was also a report from a neighbor that Nectal had expressed anger and ill will towards Patton in the past. But again, this was all circumstantial and nothing was concrete. After the hearing took place, the case was also dismissed, and police were back to square one. Those who had been accused went on to live relatively normal lives. At this point, and years of painful waiting, citizens were disgusted with the police's handling of the case and their lack of results. Time and time again, someone would write in the town newspaper to express their thoughts and frustrations. But despite all of the talk, the file stayed open for many years without any resolution, and remains the infamous largest unsolved murder in Alberta's history. Since day one, police have struggled with the investigation, giving credence to the idea that if it wasn't for them, the results would have been a lot more positive. In 1917, the Alberta Provincial Police was created as a result of the need for policing in the Prairie Provinces. This new agency expressed a turbulent beginning, with a high amount of resignations and financial struggles within its first year. There were high tensions between investigators locally and the ones that were brought in, and no one agreed on how such a massive case with implications such as this should be handled, leading to less cooperation than would have been expected. At one point, an outside police officer was brought in to go undercover and integrate with the locals to hopefully find new information, but to no avail. This was compounded by the fact that, as the investigation went on, the area was hit with the Spanish flu. Complicating witness interviews, and many of the witnesses and people attached to them, died. Increasing rewards for information brought no new evidence to light, leading to the less than foolproof arrests of both Lowe and Nectal. Despite any results, a small community gave way to plenty of theories. During the trials of Lowe and Nectal, the theory of it being a murder-suicide was again debated, but it was never accepted. The six individuals who were killed were all immigrants of Eastern European descent. And many other people in the town who were British and had enlisted in the war held immigrants, particularly Germans, in disdain. Safe to say, they did not get along very well. Lately, more immigrants had been buying up land in Grand Prairie, enough to attract the attention of locals who would rather not see them move in, especially those who resemble the enemy of the war effort. Many people reasoned that perhaps this was enough motivation to have them killed. Though investigators searched among the immigrant community for suspects as well, many felt that it must have been someone British, someone who wanted the immigrants dead. Some of the suspects were vocal about their feelings concerning the war and immigrants, and others would have benefited greatly from the death of these men. In the 1990s, a local historian named Wally Tansom worked feverishly to re-examine the case and come to a more concrete conclusion than police ever could. He believed that Lowe was the most likely of the suspects to have committed the murders, but the evidence that police had was circumstantial and not nearly enough to convict him. There were several factors in play that remained unexplained and can again be attributed to the lack of a timely and full-fledged police response. Tansom died before he could officially publish his findings, so perhaps one day his book will surface via his family and we will have a better idea of how this bungled investigation could have been avoided. There still exists a large amount of interest surrounding this case, as evidenced by the recently funded Blood on the Prairie's podcast that hopes to dive deeper into these gruesome murders, by conducting interviews and looking over the evidence at the source in a way that… I just can't. Here's hoping they find something to put the surviving relatives of those in Grand Prairie's minds at ease. So what do you think of the Grand Prairie slayings? Was there ever any hope that police could find the killer? Or was this small town doomed to a life without answers from the start? Let me know what you think by following me on Instagram at maple moose mysteries and sending me a message. If you want more mysteries, crimes, unsolved Canadian stories, be sure to follow this podcast, Maple Moose Mysteries, and rate me on iTunes. It really helps me out and I appreciate it. If you do, hey, maybe we can grab a poutine sometime and talk about other Canadian stereotypes. I love maple. I love mooses. I'd love to see you next time when I have a new mystery to share with you all.